People of God, the passage before us this afternoon is the closing passage of uh, Peter's first letter, and the closing call of 1 Peter is the call to humility. It's a call that we need to hear often, uh, perhaps even every day, because um, while humility lies at the very essence of true faith, yet humility is not of us. Uh, Each of us uh, is uh, a great bundle of pride, uh, while faith requires humility. Humility is too often that one thing missing in people who otherwise know the gospel and believe the historical truth of God's word, but, but knowledge and assent, as we say, those two together are not yet the completion of true faith, Knowledge is just knowledge, and belief in a historical Jesus who died on a Roman cross is just historical knowledge. But the thing that completes faith is humility, the humility to say in full trust that Christ is my Savior and I will follow him. All of which means that it's uh, just not enough to say, in God we trust. Uh, The words, in God we trust, are printed on our U.S. currency, and uh, too often we we make that four-word expression uh, the test of Christian faith. Uh, But the question remains, as we touched on this morning already, the question remains, which God and what trust? Or to put it another way, do we have the humility of true faith? Do we have the humility to submit to God's revelation of himself in Scripture? Or have we set up the God of our own choosing, the God of our own imagination? And do we have the humility to take from Scripture God's definition of what it means and what it is to trust in him? Trust in God for what? Trust in God uh, when, uh, when things are good, uh, or like the churches that Peter was writing to, even when things are not good, not good at all in terms of our place, position, and prestige in the world. So the battle is on. Have we figured out that the Christian life is certainly uh, a battle? But the battle here is, uh, it would seem, to keep the words in God we trust, uh, on our money. Uh, And yet, it will be a shallow victory to keep the words if we do not have the humility to define the words uh, according to the Word of God. The passage before us this afternoon uh, within God's Word can be fairly summarized exactly by the words, in God we trust, but uh, Peter is not ambiguous in the, in the least about what God and what it means to trust this God. So uh, let these be uh, two remaining points uh, this, this afternoon. Number one, the God in whom we trust. And number two, the trust uh, we have in God. First of all, the, the God in whom we trust. Peter uh, writes in verse 6, "...humble yourselves therefore." And I think it's, uh, it's fair to paraphrase with the words, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. First uh, Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. 
and uh, a parallel verse. Uh, indeed, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. But even as Proverbs 3, 5 identifies God as Yahweh, again to uh, come back to uh, what we were talking about this morning, um, so it's the God who parted the Red Sea and led Israel through on dry ground. Uh, and so 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So the first way that Peter identifies uh, the God in whom we trust uh, is to refer to the mighty hand of God. In other words, here is a God uh, who we can trust. Here is a God who is mighty. Here is a God for whom nothing is impossible. And even as we remember that great parting of the Red Sea, yet long before he parted the Red Sea, he created the Red Sea. Indeed, as he created everything, we see the power of our God. And Scripture makes it clear that uh, when we see the world still existing today, we've made this point before, when we see the stars still in their place, the land still bearing vegetation, mankind still thriving on the face of the earth, as we see the world still existing today, we are seeing nothing less than a further revelation of the power of God, indeed the enduring power of God in all that he has made. But what's interesting is that Peter doesn't uh, refer here to the powerful word of God, but to the mighty hand of God. And the significance is, is uh, surely to, uh, to give his readers to, to see that God acts in power uh, on behalf of his people. The hand of God is his, is his activity, his doing, his involvement, and his work in the lives of his people every day. And this takes meditation and remembrance uh, within us because the tendency is always toward a kind of deism, which is to say the belief that, well, there is a God, but he isn't all that involved in the world. Maybe uh, something <coughs> of an overstatement, but deism is the belief that uh, God created the world and then left for the coast. Uh, indeed, Scripture reveals to us a God who is both mighty and mighty to act and to bless his people in all that they need from day to day. Which brings us to a second attribute of God. Peter further identifies the God in whom we trust in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So, so add to the power of God the care of God. God cares for His people. God is involved in the lives of His people exactly because He cares for them. Perhaps the, the care of God is, is not technically one of His attributes. But uh, what we're talking about is certainly, of course, the love of God, uh, the compassion of God. So in case we miss the point of Peter's reference to the mighty hand of God, Peter comes right out and says it in the next verse, God cares for you. I would guess that 
perhaps that doesn't get said enough in sermons, just the, the simple statement, uh, the reassuring promise of Scripture, God cares for you. Sometimes the point of preaching is just that simple, to say things out loud. One of the most simple and yet most profound definitions of preaching is to sound the promises of God once again upon the hearing ears of His people. Here's one of those promises. God God cares for His people. He's not too busy to know us, and He's not too important to care. God cares for His people. And this is really the way that the power of God becomes a a comfort to us. Because if you think about it, what real comfort is there in knowing that God has all power if we are not convinced that He cares for us? Unless He is willing to use His power to bless us, to provide for what we need. Willing and able. Willing and able. Those are the two things you have to figure out about a person if you're asking someone to help you. Uh, Are they willing and are they able? We we usually don't ask if we aren't convinced that they're able. Uh, So when we ask, it would seem to me what we're really asking is, are you willing? And the same thing applies in, in our relationship to God. Is He able? Well, yes, of course He's able. Otherwise, we wouldn't even ask. But the bigger question, it would seem... Uh, perhaps we might even say the greater doubt that we might have is, is he willing? This is how the Apostle Paul uh, answers this question. Uh, Is he willing? Uh, He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So is he willing? Well, if you think about it, it it shouldn't even be a question for those who believe that God gave His own Son to die on the cross for them, because if He has already given us Christ, this is Paul's logic, if He has already given us Christ, then He has made it abundantly clear, has He not, that He is willing. And this brings us to a third attribute of God as Peter identifies the God in whom we trust, namely, the graciousness of God. In verse 10, he writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. So he's not just a God of grace, but the God of all grace, which is a lot like saying uh, not just that God is loving, but that God is love. In the same way, God is not just gracious, He is grace in a sense. He is the standard of grace, and even more, there is no grace except the grace of God. He is the God of all grace. Which answers the question even further of whether He is willing and why He cares for His people. And it's not because we have drawn His affection or that we have earned His care through something we have done, if that were the case, then we would have to live in daily doubt, daily fear of, of perhaps doing something to lose His affection and to make Him throw up His hands in disgust of us. Instead, He is willing to bless and provide for us because He is gracious, which means that 
We haven't drawn his affection. He simply has set his affection upon us. He simply decided and in and of himself uh, decreed to, to save us from our sin, as we say. We didn't draw his affection. We can't do anything to lose his affection. Even if we wanted God to quit loving us, he wouldn't do it because he is the God of all grace. Here's a place where uh, the preacher goes looking for an illustration and can't find one because there is nothing parallel. There's no, there's no similarity between the grace of God and anything in the world. Closest thing, perhaps, is the love of parents for their children. And yet we all know of someone who managed to exasperate the love of their parents. Parents are gracious toward their children over and over again. They are gracious to their children, but the grace of parents toward their children is only a sliver of the, of the grace of God because, again, he is the God of all grace. And yet we might ask the question of why Peter mentions the grace of God here. Because it doesn't seem like he's addressing wayward Christians, Christians that need to be forgiven, in other words. He's writing to suffering Christians. So why is it a comfort to remind suffering Christians that God is the God of all grace? Well, surely Peter has been in ministry long enough to know that suffering Christians will always be failing Christians. Believers in Christ who who flinch in the face of persecution, those who who hesitate, equivocate, uh, vacillate. Uh, And of course, the longer a person spends following Christ, the more reason that person accumulates for why in their doubting mind God might indeed throw up his hands and walk away. So Peter writes this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that brings us to a fourth attribute of God, uh, in the God or of God, uh, the God in whom we trust, um, which is his faithfulness. That's really, I think, what Peter is referring to when he writes that God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is faithful. And while a a period of suffering may seem to stretch on and on, uh, while it may seem that our our whole life is one long period of suffering, yet none of it leaves God behind, uh, and none of it cancels the promises of God. It's just that God never made a promise that would exempt His people from suffering. He just promises to be faithful to us, for the long run, for as long as our suffering lasts. And and in the end, He will restore us. He will confirm us. He will strengthen us. And He will establish us. And all because He is faithful. So it is that Peter refers to the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Whenever we hear a a reference in Scripture to the call of God, um, we need to be careful not to hear it in the sense uh, of just God saying, come here. That's what we say and and what we mean when when we say to each other, hey, come on over. Uh, 
I've got more meatloaf than I can eat. But the call of God is His command. And not His command in the sense of His Ten Commandments. Instead, the call of God is the command of God that created the world. God called the world into existence. God called the light to shine, and so it shines still today. Uh, God called the stars to hang in space, and, and there they hang still today. Even more, the call of God in this sense is, is like the command of Christ that brought Lazarus out of the grave. It was a powerful command that brought immediate and permanent results. That's the call of God that Peter is referring to in 1 Peter uh, 5.10. It's the call of God to His eternal glory, and it's the call of God that He sounded in Christ. So here is the assurance of of His faithfulness. If God called the world, think about it, if God called the world into being and it still exists today, then if God has called us to His eternal glory in Christ, that glory surely awaits us. Glory awaits us, not just because God always does what He says, but because He says, because of what He has already done. Let me say that again. Glory awaits us. Not just because God always does what He says, but because what He says already is. We may not have arrived there, but God has called us to the glory that awaits us. And He has called us by His powerful, 100% effective call. So if that's the God in whom we trust, then what is the trust that we must have in Him? Here's our second point, the trust we have in God. First of all, as we've said, humility. Verse eight, uh, verse 6 again says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And most specifically, this humility is a matter of waiting for God to exalt us at the proper time. The problem is that for us, the proper time to be exalted is right about now. In each new day, in each moment of the day, the temptation is to seek and claim the, the highest spot, the center of attention, the place of greatest honor. And so we exalt ourselves rather than humbling ourselves. But clearly, Peter's point is that the proper time for our exaltation must be left to the wisdom of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, writes Peter, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Secondly, peace. The trust we must have in God will include peace. Peter continues in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So instead of anxiety and worry, Trust in God, cast all anxiety on Him. Instead of being uh, about chasing after the things we need, we saw this in Matthew 6 this morning, remember? Instead of chasing after the things we need uh, with a pagan sense of, of desperation, instead, cast all your anxieties on the Lord. And the thing that allows us to do this is knowing and remembering 
that the, the time that we have on this earth is only the smallest fraction of eternity and that eternal life is ours in Christ. We don't have to keep ourselves alive as if we really had any power to do that anyhow. Because God will sustain us in this life. All the days ordained for me, says the psalmist, are written in your book before one of them came to be. And we don't have to live on in this life to be happy and fulfilled. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. The gain of death is to depart and be with Christ, which is which is far better. Do we really believe that? If we do, then we have cast all our anxieties on the Lord. We don't have to save our lives. We don't have to preserve our lives. We have been saved. And we are preserved. And we have eternal life in Christ. So here's one of those expressions that we uh, love to hear and and we tend to say yes and amen to, but, but we need to stop and ask, what, is, what does this mean? Peter writes of casting all your anxieties on him. Uh, what does that mean? How do you do that? You know as well as I do that you can decide over and over again to cast your anxieties on the Lord, and yet you go right on being anxious. So is this really something that we do and? In this respect, I, I think the ESV has the better rendering here because this isn't so much a, a command to do something as it is a description of what happens when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In other words, it's not a matter of, number one, humble yourselves, and then this other second thing, cast your anxieties on the Lord. Instead, it's a matter of humble yourselves, thus having your anxieties taken from you. Because it's exactly by living for your own glory and your own exaltation in the present that will surely lead to anxiety. If we chase after exaltation in this life, then how can we really be anything but anxious? Always worrying about the next experience that might rob us of the thing that we're chasing after, the thing that we are living for. So here's the blessing of humility. Uh, we think that humility is going to cost us everything, and it will. But it's humility that brings us the great blessing. Because when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we're delivered from the, the rat race of unbelief. We're delivered from our own requirement and demand for exaltation. And again, how do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? By remembering and reviewing, reestablishing in our minds and in our hearts every day that God is mighty, that He cares for us, that He is gracious, that He is faithful to the end. God is mighty, He cares for us, He is gracious, He is faithful to the end. God is mighty, He cares for us, He is gracious, and He's faithful to the end. Third, the trust that we have in God must be a matter of watchfulness. In verse 8, we hear the call to be sober-minded, which we hear several times over in Peter's first letter. And we need to understand that this uh, isn't a, a prohibition of, uh, of laughter and joy. 
But being sober-minded is certainly a matter of taking our faith seriously. Not just as a side issue in our lives, not as a hobby, not as a matter of any kind of compartmentalized spirituality. Instead, we are disciples of Christ, full-time, having answered the call of Christ to follow Him and taking our faith seriously. And hand-in-hand with being sober-minded is being watchful. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. And what are we watching for? Well, we're watching for temptation. Uh, Are you being mindful of of uh, how given you are to wander, uh, first of all, in your thinking, in your perspective on this world, because as often as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, in the next minute we're right back to expecting and even requiring exaltation in this life. But with that expectation comes anxiety, and worse yet, it comes to sin as the quick result uh, all too often. Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's, a, it's an image that should make us, bring us to take very seriously our faith, as well as to take very seriously the existence and the power of the evil one. But there's also a sense in which Satan did his greatest work to lead us astray back in the Garden of Eden. In other words, temptation isn't all about isn't all out there. It's it's in here. And the corruption and the weakness of our flesh will all too often be Satan's means of tempting us. James writes We just heard this recently. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth, uh, uh, brings forth death. So so the answer is to be sober-minded. Be serious about your faith. Be watchful. Yes, watchful of things out there, but watchful of of your own self, too, your own heart, your own thinking, your own mind. Do you know your weakness? Will you admit your weakness? Uh, In other words, instead of just avoiding sin, like monks in a monastery, we we must be very careful uh, in our minds to be thinking uh, the thoughts of God after him, to be thinking with the knowledge of God Again, that he is mighty, that he is caring, that he is gracious, that he is faithful. So that's the trust that we are called to have in God. And here then, uh, in closing, is the outcome of our faith, which to some degree we've already noted. But to reiterate, to make it plain, the outcome of our faith is that God will exalt us. Indeed, he has already exalted us in Christ. He has raised us up with him, we're told in Ephesians Uh, Chapter 2, he has raised us up with him and has seated us with him uh, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And Peter writes in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while. It won't seem that way, will it? Does suffering ever seem short? But remember that the the perspective is eternity, our, our eternal life in Christ. So Peter says, 
uh, calls it just a little while. And after you have suffered a little while, the grace of the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So our exaltation, which has already been accomplished in Christ, our exaltation will soon be our glorification. I'm not sure you can make a perfect distinction between the exaltation and the glorification that are ours in Christ. Uh, even of glorification, the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, however, in Romans 8, that we have been glorified. Again, how so? Well, again, through Christ, who even now is in glory at the right hand of the Father. In God we trust. What God? Which God? In God we trust. What does it mean to trust in God? Let us take our answers from God's word. Let us not settle for civil religion. Let us be people of the book. And let us reap the benefits of trusting in this God and in none other. Amen. Let's uh, pray together. Indeed, O God, we would trust in you. Grant that we would do so by remembering who you are as you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And, O God, give give us such a trust, such a faith, that we would indeed be delivered of anxiety and care and, and the burden of, of uh, always trying to get now what is, what is promised us later. Indeed, keep us from suffering, but if you would call us to suffer, may we, may we do so trusting in you. And we do thank you for all the promises of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.